Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast. I am your host, Eric Nugala. Joining me today is violinist and founder of the Violin Guild on Facebook. Please let me welcome Dr. Emmanuel Abraham. Emmanuel, thank you for agreeing to come on the Violin Podcast this week. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Can you tell the audience where you're from and how you got started on the violin? Sure. Well, I was born and bred in Chicago, from Chicago's inner city. And the violin came to me from... Well, my desire to play came from watching. I grew up on uh, Sesame Street, and Itzhak Perlman had been a guest on uh, on the show, and I was infatuated with the instrument. I made it look cool. He made it look easy. Um, you know what's not to love. Fortunately, one of those was right. It's it's very cool. I went to uh, started begging for violin lessons right away, but I'm. Uh, it wasn't really in the means, uh, the financial means of my family. We lived in a small apartment, and violins hadn't come up before. And uh, a few years down the line, my mother had seen an ad in the newspaper, and it was advertising a free violin lesson at the Merritt School of Music. I was 14 years old, and I went to I went to go get the free lesson. Uh, Merritt had an instrument that I could borrow for that lesson, and I had the lesson, and the teacher took a liking to me, which I'm really grateful for, and she told me that after her normal classes that I could come back and return, and she'd give me another lesson free of charge, and um, uh, so I wasn't going to say no. I, I just absolutely loved the instrument immediately, and everything that I wanted to do immediately became violin related, just uh, pretty much overnight. The high school I went to wasn't the greatest, and uh, I had a lot of issues with um, uh, being bullied at the school. And uh, it wasn't the you know poke fun and jeering type. I was I was getting physically hurt a lot at school uh, to the point where I was uh, I was terrified of uh, of going to school. And the Merritt School of Music and the violin, and it was just a completely different culture. And the best part about it immediately was just that I felt safe. Everyone you know, was smiling. Everyone was on your side. And the whole aim of studying music was to produce something beautiful. And I had a voice you know, in music that I didn't really have anywhere else. I felt like I could be heard. And people actually spent time listening to my voice, my musical voice. Um, so it immediately was extremely important to me, and it took took everything. I went and I got my first violin from the Salvation Army in Chicago, um, and it was 
Uh, it had three strings, um, and it was stored in a pillowcase. And that was my that was my first violin. And uh, I brought it to the teacher, and I was helped with uh, setting it up and getting it to work. And uh, immediately in my in my first uh, two months of playing. Uh, I got through four and a half volumes of the Suzuki method, um, and I had never read music before, never touched an instrument before. It was just literally all day. And so after those couple of months, the uh, teacher said, you know, you've made outstanding progress. The Merritt School of Music has a program that you can audition for, where, and it's a tuition-free program, the tuition-free conservatory. Um, they have a symphony there, full symphony, music theory, chamber music, um, and if you audition into this program, the tuition is free. The rule had been that you needed to be have been playing your instrument that you're auditioning on for at least two years, and I'd only been playing for two months. And um, the dean of the school came, uh, my teacher had talked to her, she came and auditioned me, and um, she said I was the first student in the conservatory program that had been playing less than two years. And it stayed like that. Uh, everything that I wanted to do that I was doing was music related. Um, I stopped playing video games around the time, if not exactly when I picked up the violin for the first time. That was the last video game I ever played. I, uh, I skipped prom, skipped my own birthday parties, uh, anything to get that extra minute of practice in was done. I was getting up at four in the morning to, you know, plug things out on my instrument. Again, I lived in an apartment, so it wasn't the most uh, it wasn't the most conductive for practice. But what I did do, I when I went to school, uh, the orchestra room. I did join the orchestra at, uh, at my high school, and the orchestra room was another place where I felt safe. All the trouble that was going on at my school, which involved physical abuse, gangs, drugs, you name it, it was it was happening there. Um, but the orchestra room was a place I could feel safe. No one was interested in the, uh, in the orchestra. And so it came to the point where the teacher, the director would give me the keys because I was always the first one in the orchestra room and the last one out. So he gave me the responsibility of unlocking and locking the room. And uh, towards the end of the day, that left me with several hours alone with just me and the instrument. Um, so I got much, uh, a lot of practice in, in that time. Uh, I started learning how to read music. I was still musically illiterate, and I started reading my music forwards. I'd turn it on its side, and I'd read it backwards. I'd turn it upside down, read it from top to bottom, uh, right to left. Anything I could do to... Uh, develop and improve um, was something that I was going to do, and that was my that was my start on the instrument. It just seemed that the more I, I practiced, the more good things happened. the uh, The first year of my playing, I went to uh, Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. People had come and auditioned students at the school. I left that summer and attended Blue Lake. And while I was there, I auditioned for their international orchestra, uh, the International Youth Symphony Orchestra, and uh, I got in, and uh, uh, I became concertmaster of that ensemble for several years in a row. And uh, again, it was a merit-like situation 
where if you audition high enough, the program is paid for you. And in that orchestra, if you're if you're concert master, they pay for the tour for you. And the tour at the time uh, was just over four four grand. And so that was basically the only way that was going to going to happen and keep happening. But I kept that position all all four years, uh, every summer uh, during high school and my first year into college. And it was taking on serious repertoire. You know, we were uh, doing uh, Strauss, Till Lloydenspiegel. Um, what a phenomenal piece, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's great. And, and uh, you know, th- those were my first orchestra solos, too. We did, uh, we did Chike 4, um, Chike 6, uh, Mendelssohn's Elijah, um, Carmina Burana, tons and tons of repertoire with that, uh, with that ensemble. And um, at the same time, during the rest of the year, I had also auditioned into the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra, um, became a first violin there. And I still think that to this day, that was, I had never worked harder for an audition. I, uh, this was for the Chicago Youth Symphony? Yes. Yeah. I, um, I took the, uh, I memorized everything that was on the audition list, forwards and backwards, and it literally got to the point where when the audition came, it was about two and a half years after I started playing, it felt like uh, it felt like reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb. Like I, I just, I had gone through it so many times. Uh, I literally memorized the um, measure numbers and the excerpts, everything about the pieces. So that was my uh, that was my start. Uh, I, I did other things and other programs. I, and I played in uh, the Oak Park Symphony, and uh, I also did a tour with the uh, Merritt Symphony Orchestra. Um, but all of a sudden, college was a possibility. People were talking to me about college for the first time. And that wasn't on the trajectory of my life. At what age did you have that conversation where college was a possibility for you? Sure. Well, my, uh, my violin teacher, uh, Guillaume Cambé, phenomenal violinist. And at the time, he was a uh, concertmaster of the Chicago Civic Orchestra. And uh, he, he asked me if um, you know, he was complimenting me on the progress that I had made in a very limited amount of time. And he asked me if college auditions were within my intentions. I mean, I just kind of looked at him like a deer in headlights <laughs> because uh, no one had asked me about college before. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's a possibility now. And um, so I kind of stuttered my way through a, a yes, um, I knew I definitely never wanted to stop music. Music really, it saved my life. You know, it gave me a place where I could, well, many places where I could feel safe for the first time. And so for me, college just seemed like the way to continue playing violin uh, and to get better at it and to continue having a teacher. And I do want to talk about your collegiate years in a moment, but I just want to comment about your incredible story. This is for people who are listening. This is the first time I've talked to Dr. Abraham, and this I'm so glad that he's able to share his story and his experience with the world. And it's just an, an incredible thing to listen to coming out of the inner city of Chicago and kind of paving your own path out of the inner city where, you know, it was very unfortunate 
to hear about all those terrible things that happened to you. But it sounded like that gave you that extra motivation to work harder, to wake up very early in the morning, to continue pursuing your dream. Can you talk a little about for someone who is struggling in kind of the same situation that you experienced, what it takes and goal setting and pursuing your dreams? Can you comment on that? Sure, uh, absolutely. I'm trying to find uh, which one of those, uh, which one of those three to <laughs> address first. Um, but for goal setting, my I think the with goals, the most important and the most useful factor of goal setting is having those goals fit within a larger spectrum, a larger goal. And by that, I mean. Uh, for example, I wanted to be heard. I felt like everything I said fell on deaf ears. I got, I had my nose broken. I had my uh, black eye. I was stabbed with a knife and worse, worse, much worse things happened to me in, uh, while I was at high school. And every time I went to administration to talk about it, it felt like it fell on deaf ears. It was like I, I could stand anywhere and shout at the top of my lungs and no one would hear it. And I didn't know it at the time, but my goal was to be heard um, and to feel safe in doing so. Music was both of those. And so the getting up early, the going to bed late, the finding every corner I could possibly practice in. I, I took my violin out at bus stops and just practiced there uh, to get the extra 10 minutes in to figure something out. But it, the motivating, the, the most motivating part of it was that it all fit within the bigger goals. Feeling safe, being heard, uh, and having a modus operandus by which to express myself, which I hadn't, I hadn't really done before. And picking up music was a way for me to also learn who I was. It's like I, I didn't know who I was. I hadn't heard myself talk and I hadn't let myself feel. Everything in my life was about not being vulnerable and music suddenly was all about being vulnerable. And so everything fit within those those goals and that growth. So I think, you know, if I, if I set a goal like, okay, get up early tomorrow because you might get more done, that wouldn't be enough by itself. Or okay, practice six hours today because you'll be a better violinist tomorrow if you practice six hours today. That's not enough by, by itself. There needs to be, at least for me, in my own experience, an overarching goal, such as, and something integral, such as uh, safety or being heard, etc. So what you're suggesting essentially is to have very specific goals. Because one giant goal is sometimes unobtainable. And I know that I teach this to my students. And I know that you're an educator and you're a teacher. And I would love to dive into a conversation about teaching uh, later on. But I always tell my students to, you know, set at least three specific goals with a piece after every lesson. And I think that really does help, um, whether it's in music or even in life. I know that for myself... Um, I have like a little journal where I write down the things that I want to get done for the next day. And there are a lot of very specific things 
you know, on my plate these days, but that's kind of, that's kind of keeping yourself accountable in many ways. And, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's spot on, you know, it's, it's a lot like driving cross country. You know, I, um, recently I drove from Arizona to, uh, Arkansas. What doesn't work is to get on the road and say, I want to go to Arkansas. Like, you know, that's where you want to go, but that absolutely does not work. That's the final um, destination, right? But right. what a, about the ins and outs of pre- prepping for a road trip? Yeah, exactly. You know, you've got the preparation. Preparation's super important, um, but also setting smaller goals on the way to that. You know, I, you know, my saving grace during that drive <laughs> was uh, uh, the welcome to Texas, welcome to Mississippi, welcome to Louisiana. Uh, signs along the way. And so, you know, I knew when those were coming. And so my goal, my bigger, my smaller goals, my more specific ones would be the state signs. I'd get hungry. My goal would be, okay, get to, you know, the third gas station and then go to this restaurant. Smaller goals, you know, it's it's a lot easier to, um, you know, take 80 smaller bites than to, you know, have a whole foot long sub at once. <laughs> yeah, I know that those are really difficult to eat on on one time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I want to talk about something very specific that you said in the in the beginning of the interview where you said that the orchestra room in your high school was a safe space. And it sounded like to me as you were describing it as it was almost like your sanctuary where music was your sanctuary, where you can finally find some peace out of all the chaos that's happening around you. Can you talk about the music as a way to kind of escape from everyday life and kind of help you as a form of healing? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And this really, this really touches strongly upon why I began to write music uh, and why composition became so important to me. And that reason is that music is, in every way that I know, a class of language. Uh, We humans read it, we write it, uh, we speak it with something that produces sound, and we use it to communicate some part of the human experience. To my knowledge, those are all the factors of of language. Um, And I say class of language rather than a single language, like the musical language, um, because there are are many genres. Um, I was just going to say, I'm glad you made that distinction because I oftentimes struggle with people saying music is a universal language. And it's a very common thing to say, but as you described, you know, classical music is one class of language and Eastern classical music is one class of language. So I think you're spot on on that. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate it. You know, um, music is, is a universal language. You know, it sounds, it sounds great and it also sounds epic. I don't want to be the guy that says that that's not true. I mean, who, who doesn't <laughs> want to say that? It's a pretty <laughs> epic thing to say. Music is a universal language. It's very marketable and... But if you really dive deep and really analyze what those words mean, then there's something deeper going on. Right. Uh, and with that particular statement, uh, something that's just not true. And uh, it, it, here, 
Uh, I say class of language rather than a single language because there's many there's many genres. Uh, many professional musicians even will debase a kind of music they don't like and say it's because they understand it on a level that its fans do not. I believe nine times out of ten, the reason is the exact opposite. Uh, we don't like particular musics of the world because we do not understand them. For example, I, I can hear someone say the most beautiful words in Polish, and because I know nothing of Slavic languages, it will mean absolutely nothing to me. Did you say that because I'm Polish? Or did you just randomly say that language? <laughs> oh, no, I, I did not know that you were Polish. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, um, I'm also from Chicago, so in the you know it's like the, the like it's like another Polish country in Chicago. So it's <laughs> for all you Polish violinists out there, yes. Like, yeah, I, I could hear someone, and it so it would it might mean something to you if you heard someone say the most beautiful words ever in Polish, and I, it wouldn't mean anything to me because I wouldn't, I literally wouldn't understand it. It's not that I don't like it; it's that I I can't like it. In that way, uh, verbal languages are no different from musical languages. You know, there's some music that I do not like simply because I can't like it for sheer lack of my understand, uh, understanding. I don't, like, I don't understand death metal yet. Um, you know, and neither do I, and I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, and what and a what, uh, professional linguist, you know, you can have a, a, a doctorate in a language and not know every language on planet earth. I think, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that I don't understand X kind of music. And, uh, and yeah, th and that's why it was so, uh, and that's why music was so important to me because it was, uh, a language, uh, and it was a language that I could learn. And it's like, okay, well, no one, no one will hear me speak English. You know, I can say that I'm getting hurt. I can say that I'm hungry. I can say that this isn't working and no one hears me, but I play music and people literally stop, look, and audiences come and they come to hear you. That was a totally, that's a, a totally new experience and totally opposite. And I feel that, you know, I started old enough to really appreciate how significant that alone is. A lot of my, a lot of my peers you know, they were fortunate enough to start younger, um, but a lot of them don't remember not having an audience come to hear something. I remember not having audience. I remember when no one on planet Earth wanted to hear anything I had to say in any language. I remember not having an audience, and I remember, I remember not being able to read music. Um, a lot of my friends can't remember not being able to read music. I remember hearing classical music and not liking it because I didn't understand it. I remember I listened, I was watching, uh, I think I was watching Glory on the History Channel, um, and there's, there was a scene in it where someone was playing, um, someone was playing a forte piano. It was something contrapuntal, I don't remember it very well, but I remember just thinking that that was the most terrible music on, on planet Earth. And I remember hearing my first violin concerto. I bought uh, Pinka Zuckerman, playing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and I got that because it was a free, uh, it came in a magazine, and it said you could pick it for free, and I heard that he was friends with Itzhak Perlman, the guy I'd seen on Sesame Street, 
So I got it and I listened to the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto and I remember being blown away by the technique, but I didn't understand the music. I, I didn't know what a theme was and the rhythms were way more complex than anything I'd, I'd heard before. So I couldn't, I couldn't place a beat. I thought I knew what a beat was and I didn't. And uh, so I, I can remember not understanding the language of class of Western classical music either. So that that gives me a lot of uh, a lot of significance. That grants it a lot of significance because I, I can really really appreciate it for what it is. It wasn't always there. Thank you, Doctor Abraham. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For sharing all of that. And I kind of want to transition into your college days, your collegiate days. So you were able to, you know, I'm sure that you took auditions, you, you know, applied for many schools around the country, and you you got accepted into college. So talk about your exp- collegiate years and how that experience was for you. Sure, sure. <laughs> my um, uh, my college audition process that was one of the most nerve wracking things because I felt that college was a new goal for me, and it didn't feel like the end of the world if I didn't get into college for college's sake. What I was afraid of was that it would be the end of violin playing. You know, the Merritt School of Music, the International Youth Symphony, the Chicago Youth Symphony, all of those um, ended at, you know, when high school ends. After high school ends, you can't be part of those anymore, at least not as a student. And the looming thought for me was if I don't get into uh, college for music, the music ends. I mean, the, the development, I, I still needed lessons. I still needed training. I still needed help. I wanted to play music that I was starting to be able to understand. But if I was going to do that, I needed to, uh, I needed lessons to continue. Um, so for me, the college audition process was you need, to, you need to get into college for music or the music ends. And all those Paganini caprices that you, you know, that you're listening to and getting goosebumps over and uh, your last rose of summer variations and whatnot, those will literally never happen <laughs> if you don't get into college. So building up the courage to go about the auditions for the schools that I went for, because at, at that point, um, I'd been playing four and a half years and uh, I auditioned for... Uh, DePaul, Northwestern, uh, the University of Michigan, um, a couple of other places. And I also felt nervous because my family was not well off. Driving to another state to go do anything was a big deal. And, uh, and I don't even think we had a working car at that point. Um, and so, you know, it, it involved the entire family. Everyone was pitching in. And uh, I just felt like if I if I don't get into university, I'm literally going to let everyone down. Not just my family, but every 
teacher and ensemble that ever made me feel safe, it'll be a letdown for them. So I auditioned. I got into, I did get into every school that I auditioned for. And I chose the University of Michigan. And I'm very grateful uh, that I did. I uh, had a phenomenal teacher there, a couple of phenomenal teachers there. And uh, I studied first with um, Andrew Jennings, um, Nomberg Award uh, winner. And then I studied with David Halen for a few years. Really, really grateful for working with both of them. The uh, Immediately after I got into to university, um, unlike high school experiences where people took things not, everyone didn't take everything super seriously. At the university, everything was serious. Your grades depended on everything. Uh, your ability to stay in the school depended on doing well. Uh, applying for scholarships the next year or getting a grant depended on doing well. And uh, uh, and it was very competitive. When I got into Michigan, I'd say that that year, probably 2009, was probably the the cockiest I had ever been. You know, I had reached this point where you know I'd been playing four and a half years. I was you know starting to play Paganini Caprices. I, I learned one, um, and I did number 14 for my undergrad auditions. And I just thought, man, you know, if I can do this in four years, you know, in eight years, I'll be unstoppable. So I got into Michigan and immediately I was one of the worst ones there. There's a whole new uh, caliber of uh, musicians. And it felt similar to the way it did when I first joined the, uh, the conservatory uh, at the Merritt School of Music. It's like you quickly rise to the top of a program and then you go somewhere else and you're immediately the worst one there. That's what happened at Michigan. And so I had that drive just constantly, constantly playing catch up and um, to stay in the school, to stay in the programs. And because I was so obsessed with it and because that was the only thing, that's what mattered most, uh, I was very, very pedantic about everything I learned. Uh, if I prepared for a test, I wasn't just, you know, cramming practice, cramming study the night before. I'd memorize whole sheets of information for the exam. Uh, I graduated from my undergrad uh, magna cum laude and then from grad school uh, summa cum laude. And at the end of my undergrad, from the progress I had made and uh, other work that I had done, I started composing uh, near the end of my undergrad, uh, and I also started working for the Sphinx organization out in Detroit. I taught for, by the end, I taught for six uh, different schools in the Detroit Flint area, and uh, I won an award and a medal, and they presented it to me at, at the graduation ceremony for undergrad. I became a first violin in the higher orchestra, and you know I saw myself catching up. And it was just it was just exhilarating, you know. I was playing the pieces that I was told all during high school that I would never play. And I was playing Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, and I went and I, I summered it, uh, soloed it that summer. I soloed the Conus Concerto on radio. I, I did Sibelius somewhere else, but it was just getting more and more exciting. You know, it's kind of like a, the energy about it was kind of like a, a dog. You know, it's just like every minute is exciting. 
even no matter how tired you are or how hungry you are or how how long you've been, how many hours you've spent in that practice room, it's like the next second is still the most exciting second in the world. Yeah, and if I may, it's it sounds like this success is almost addicting, right? The more you get that success, the more you want it. And it's um, it's an incredible feeling when you work so hard for so many years and then you have all these great things happening around you. I think that, I think audience members oftentimes forget that there's so much work that goes into what you just described. And I think that is what's so rewarding about music is that it is clear to me just by listening to your story, it is a tool to save lives. And I know I work for a nonprofit organization that also serves, you know, low income families in an El Sistema inspired program. And I know exactly what you're uh, describing, what you're talking about, which is why I asked the question for, um, what it actually takes to get to where you are today, having three degrees in violent performance. I remember I was given a presentation about a project I was going to do. And uh, there was a gentleman in the audience who was like, I didn't know there was a master's in violent performance. And I thought, <laughs> and I think it, right. Let alone that people don't even know that they're doctorates in, in violent performance. So maybe this is the podcast where you find out. So, you know, there you go. And you mentioned a little bit about your compositions. You recently composed 24 Caprices, am I right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I did. I would love for you to speak a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Um, well, the, uh, the Caprices began largely because I was obsessed with learning everything completely. You know, I... I put a lot of bow on the string hours in, but there are still basic things that I felt, I felt like my technique was ahead of everything else that I didn't know about classical music. Like I, I could tell you, I, I could play Paganini's uh, 14th and 9th Caprices before I could confidently tell you that Mozart was a classical era composer. And, uh, and I was also still struggling to learn how to sight read fast enough. I was doing everything that I could to learn how to sight read faster, but those were issues. And so I spent a lot of time uh, with my nose in the books to just learn everything I could. And composition came about because of a lot of things came together at one point. My teacher, uh, Andrew Jennings, had he was he he encouraged all of his students to write their own cadenzas for their concerti, and uh, I had just written. Uh, I was doing Mozart's uh, Mozart three and four at the same time, largely because everyone knew them except me, and I needed to know them. And so, um, so I was doing those, and I wrote six cadenzas, uh, one for each movement, uh, for those concerti, and played them for studio. One of the students had asked. Uh, she said, "Which she said which which cadenza is that? I, I haven't heard that one. I really really like that one." And that was like the highest compliment to me because I, I was very embarrassed about my cadenzas. I didn't even call them cadenzas. That's how embarrassed I was about them. And I was just embarrassed because I hadn't written anything before and hadn't played anything before. But um, then uh, Jennings said, uh, "He said he said Emmanuel wrote that," and. Um, then she asked for a copy, and I was like, whoa, 
well, are you serious? And so, um, so yeah, I got her a copy of it. And in the process of getting the copy, I made sure that all my I's were dotted and T's were crossed. You know, made sure all the Boeings made sense. Just made and made sure everything was. Uh, I remember that was that was the night that I learned about engraving. I just stumbled upon the word. I looked it up. Uh, I read down the entire uh, Wikipedia page, and uh, I just spent the entire night up preparing these parts, basically just Boeings and, and dots and whatnot. Um, but I just wanted to make sure it was perfect. I got them to her, and she asked what publisher I used. And I said, oh, no, those are mine. She said, oh, that, that's really, really neat. At the same time, uh, I had started taking uh, jazz studies. And my jazz courses were such that we had to write uh, 2D lines, and then we'd give them to the professor. The professor would play them on the piano and basically comp, and we had to improv in front of the class. Uh, I was one of two students in the jazz class that had no experience with jazz whatsoever. And so uh, I'll confess, I started that class off trying my hardest to memorize everything I could instead of improvising everything I could. And so uh, I was writing things out. I tried to write things that sounded good. Tried to write things that sound jazzy. I'd look up, you know, how to make this sound jazzy. What is jazzy? What does that mean? Right. What does it mean for it to be jazzy? Maybe, um, maybe for anyone who's listening to the podcast, you can leave a comment and maybe describe it to us. What is jazzy? <laughs> sure. Um, the uh, what I was looking for was a kind of a, a recipe, you know, for how to make jazz and uh, improv improvisation was t completely new to me. And I didn't really have a concept of coming up with notes on the spot. And the, the difference is akin to, you can taste like pancakes, you know, pre-made, uh, pre-made pancake mix, the recipes exactly measured out. And if the person measures it out exactly, it tastes like, you know, you can't tell my pancakes from the next person's pancakes if they follow the recipe exactly. And jazz is the feeling of not following, I mean, juxtaposed to, to Western classical, it's the feeling of not following a pre-made recipe. You're still making pancakes, but they're, they're your pancakes, and you're making them with your recipe that you're making up every time that you do it. You Just like you can taste that difference in pancakes, you can hear that difference in jazz. And um, eventually it got to the point where people were saying that I was making good sounding tootie lines and they were squinting their eyes and saying, but it just sounds so robotic. He's not really getting it. It sounds just like the last time he did it. And I was like, oh, look, I, I spent five nights up in a row trying to write this out so that it would sound different. And I wrote stabs out on my hand so that I could glance at it before I had to play for you guys. But I was learning the recipe, you know, I was learning how to write music. And I was also learning, I had this crash course in jazz also at the same time. And um, so on top of the excitement that came from learning a musical language, I also had other musical languages coming to me simultaneously and more people wanting to hear me in that language, even though I wasn't good at it. And that's when, I, that's when the idea of music as a language really became solid 
to me when I actually put it in those terms and in those words. And the feeling that I get from performance versus um, composition is akin to, again, it's a language, so it's exactly like, not, not even akin to, poetry. I can read my favorite poem. Let's say it's uh, If by Rudyard Kipling or Road Not Taken, Robert Frost, your favorite poem. You know, sometimes I've recited just those two poems that I named right there. I've recited them and it's brought me to tears because of the meaning that's in the poem. Uh, just like a piece of pre-written music will. It's the experience isn't better. It's not worse. It's just entirely different when you've written the poem yourself. I saw, uh, I forgot the name of the movie. There's a movie about where there's there's a wedding. I know there's tons of movies. The people were deciding, a couple was deciding whether to, or not to write their own vows. And it's very much like that. You know, it's not better, it's not worse, but it's a, it's a very different experience. Personal. It's very personal. Very personal. You know, it's, it's your favorite bedtime story versus having a story that you make up that you love, that says everything that you want it to say, or that you even need it to say. You know, there, there's so many things that I feel are not said well in language. Spoken language, and uh, I ask for the forgiveness of anyone that hears me say this and, you know, might have been an English major, but I, I do feel that verbal language is a poor means of communication. It's just the best one or most practical one that we have as a species. But there's so much that doesn't get said in language. You know, how many times have you been hurt emotionally and tried your best to tell it to someone and you could tell that they just didn't get it at all? I know I have like a life of that being the case. And I'd like to, for everything that my words don't say or can't say, I feel that music can or does. Uh, I, I was in a, an interview with um, PBS eight or nine months ago, and the interviewee had asked me if I were to write a line. He said, what, what would the first line be in an autobiography about my life? And uh, I told him it would be a line of music. And I do feel that a line of music by me, from me, for me, would be would communicate more about how I feel, more about how I felt, and more about who I am at my core than one line of text is capable of doing. And that's where that's where the composition came in. It was immediately a way not only for me to be heard in a totally different way than I'd been heard before, but I could be heard in that way and the other musical way at the same time. Now I was writing things and performing what I wrote and the impact of that together was so strong. It was more meaningful than I, than I have words to express. I need to write another line of music just to say what music feels like. Thank you for sharing all of that, Dr. Abraham. I think what's what's unique is that I think we often look to the greats 
like the Brahms and the Beethoven. And I think many of us, many of us artists are scared to compose because we're like, well, how do we live up to that? You know? So when we come back, we're going to talk about just that. So stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast with Dr. Abraham. I really appreciate anyone who's listening on any kind of podcast platform. And uh, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. And also check out our YouTube channel, our website, violinpodcast.com. Every week we have uh, weekly deals. We have videos, uh, tutorials, DIY. Uh, recent couple videos are DIY uh, how to get the perfect bow hold for anyone who's a beginner or anyone who's interested in having a more solid, more relaxed bow hold. I, I encourage you to check that video out. Also, due to the COVID-19 crisis, we're also having, um, many of us are experiencing online virtual lessons. So I also created another video, how to get the best audio from Zoom. All of that will be in the podcast description notes. So please make sure to check that out. We're back, Dr. Abraham. So now, before we transition into Facebook and the Violin Guild and how you started up that Facebook group, I want to kind of taper off our conversation before the break about composing your own music and performing your own music. Can you describe that feeling? Sure. It's uh, the, the feeling. Again, it's, it, um, I just I just spoken about the all the things that we feel and all the things that we experience that there are no words, no verbal words to actually say. All words are a close approximation, if at best, to the things that we actually want or mean or feel. The experience of performing something that I've written is... It's like if you spend most of your life speaking other people's words and then you have an opportunity to speak your own. That's what it feels like. The, the feeling is uh, it's freedom, um, it's expression, and that's when I feel the most known. You mentioned earlier in the beginning of the interview that music gave you a voice. When you were into the orchestra, and you ha- you were given this violin, this free violin from the Salvation Army. It was it was your new voice. So I think compositionally, you know, these twenty four caprices are tells your life story. Oh yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. It has um, there's there's several of them that I have not played in five or six years, and not because they aren't some of my favorites in them, but because the Emotions that I was telling in them are so um, strong; they actually they actually hurt emotionally to uh, hear or look at again. So, absolutely, I mean, my my life story is in that. Um, it's in my uh, string quartets as well, and because I know exactly what every single note and dot and bowing choice. Um, articulation in those pieces mean um, the impact of hearing other people play them as well is very strong. I've heard uh, I've heard them performed by uh, several dozen of my uh, colleagues and former classmates, and um, the uh, impact is just uh, it's huge. And it's it's even odd in some ways. It's like if 
sometimes it feels like someone is telling a secret that only you knew, you know, it's, it's telling something deep about you. And then you see someone else do it on YouTube. It's like, how did they know I took cookies out of the cookie jar that day? So yeah, it's, it's very um, vulnerable, I think would be the best word, is the, uh, the experience of having my work performed. Um, and I think vulnerability is good and healthy for, for everyone. We're kind of in a culture, if I may say, where vulnerability is frowned upon uh, for either reasons relating to toxic masculinity um, or even just ego. Having uh, a language that you can speak and that is your language for being vulnerable and as such being heard. That's one of the strongest things that you can, that a person can have. I can honestly say music has been uh, a medicine for me in every way. Great. Thank you for sharing all of that, Dr. Abraham. And I want to transition into social media because everyone listening to this podcast who knows you, knows you as the violin doctor. What a brilliant name. How did you come up with that name, The Violin Doctor, and and how did you get started with The Violin Guild? As of right now, I think I checked maybe earlier today that the group has almost 35,000 members, string members. So anyone who plays a string instrument, beginner, intermediate, advanced, professional, they're all in this group. How did that idea come about and and share us your thoughts on that? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, my um, Instagram handle or the forum? Yeah, let's talk about the the the, the handle, the violin doctor, because that's a pretty fun sure. one. Sure. Um, uh, I well, I, I was uh, I'm a Hoovian, first of all, um, and a Hoovian for anyone who doesn't know is someone who is a fan of the BBC classic uh, Doctor Who, uh, and so I, I there's a lot of uh, Instagram handles where someone shows the Doctor. The doctor, the dr, the dr period, the underscore doctor, etc. And um, I wanted to be myself, but I always thought that that was a cool title for a superhero. It's like someone who is super, sort of like a number of the Marvel ones are. Like like Tony Stark is super, not because he has a superpower, just because he he worked his butt off. He's smart. He knows his stuff. And that's his, his superpower is literally just that he's smart. So aspiring to be like that, um, I chose the violin doctor. Um, and I did not expect, I did not expect it to take off in the way that it did. So at first I felt that it was kind of, uh, it was kind of a corny name, you know, naming yourself after a BBC hero to begin with. And then, um, just putting violin in the middle of it and, uh, it worked, you know, it said everything that I needed to say. And um, all my fellow uh, Hoovians got it immediately, and uh, so that was where the that was where the Instagram handle came from, uh, and it's just shy of twenty thousand followers now. The Violin Guild um, that came about from well, I'd, I'd been you know I'd frequented other um, violin forums. I mean, one of the ones that went to the most was violinist.com um brilliant brilliant website uh laurie niles uh, she's the the uh, author of um 
uh, a couple of books that I also like to read on violin. I've read them more than once. But I would go to this forum and ask questions. And a few days later, there'd be a few answers uh, to the question. And especially during my years in college, I felt that that I just wanted the process to be faster. And uh, I didn't know of any way to speed it up. And there were a couple of times when I had a question uh, and I would just make it a Facebook status. And the question would get a bunch of answers immediately. And I just thought, okay, this, that's a lot faster. What if, uh, and the, the answers that I valued the most were the ones that were from the violin players and uh, the, or the, the musicians, period. And uh, I thought it would be cool to have a friends list that was all string players. And so I tried that. I tried making a separate uh, Facebook account. And the only people the only people I would let on the friends list were string players. And I just thought it would be awesome to be able to make a status and have it answered by just string players. And um, Facebook's TOS had changed, and they caught the duplicate profile. And also, like, uh, I think most people who have a Facebook spend more time than is good on there. And so I managing two accounts at once was not the best use of my time as someone who wanted to practice a lot. So I was just trying to figure out a way that I could do this on one account, get string players all in one place, period. And then the, the group idea came up. And so I made the, the Violin Guild group. And I'd been a member of other, other string groups before, but I just felt like they didn't have everything I needed and that I might be able to do a better job. You know, string players, we all, we all know each other. We all work together. We're in chamber groups together. We're, in, you know, we're facing each other in symphony. We face basically the same issues on different size instruments. And we transpose half of each other's repertoire for the other half. So I felt it would be great to have all of that in one place. Um, one thing that had annoyed me about other forums was the lack of vetting. So you get string players and then an organist, a couple of tuba players, and a bunch of folks that don't play, and they're giving input where it's not useful. And for beginners who are asking questions, sometimes it's misguiding. There's some advices that an actual string player would never give. And there's other advices that someone who is actually a string player will always give. And uh, there are some things that people wouldn't, uh, didn't appreciate in the other forums. For example, someone who plays through uh, Last Rose of Summer Variations or Paganini Caprice Number no. 4, in my opinion, it's the hardest one in the book, will post, and if it doesn't sound perfect, you know, string players know to appreciate the work that did go into it at that learning point. Especially if they're saying, you know, I've been working on this for six months and this is where it's at. Um, so I just want a an exclusive community that vetted and had everything in it. So I made the Violin Guild. Um, immediately along uh, was uh, violinist Chloe Trevor, and she's the uh, founder and director of Chloe Trevor Music Academy. It's a brilliant, brilliant academy for string players. Uh, highly recommend anyone to take a look at it. And she, uh, she joined and co-administered with me in the early days when we first started out. And 
I did a lot of work to build that forum because I saw people joining and it was immediately what I wanted it to be. So I, I printed off hundreds of like color copy posters. Um, I drove around to all of the nearby universities, uh, Michigan State, Eastern Michigan University, Western Michigan University, um, University of Michigan, all the individual colleges in those universities, all the dorms. I just hung up these posters for this group everywhere. Uh, I did a lot of legwork for the first year and a half that the uh, that the guild existed, and uh, people started hearing about it. And then we started getting some real powerhouses to join. Uh, Rachel Barton joined, Mark O'Connor, um, Peter Wispelwee, uh, Roman Kim. You know, they were joining and they were just interacting with all of us. Like I could ask a question and and have uh, James Ines answer. You know, and this was uh, a resource like none other. You know, you can try emailing half of those people. And they won't get back to an email, but it's if it's on Facebook, uh, in the Violin Guild, they'll they actually get back to people uh, at a high rate, and uh, became really uh, invaluable. And the one thing that that's really uh, that's really great about it is that it's um, it's structured to be unconditionally supportive. So someone posts their first violin video, they're not going to have you know a dozen people laugh reacting to it. And mixed results. We don't uh, we don't tolerate that. That's strictly against our rules. And uh, you know, every post from everyone, you'll just see more and more support. Um, and support from all levels. I mean, we've got tons of uh, Grammy nominees, Emmy nominees, Pulitzer Prize winners, and you know, they're all being supportive of each other. And uh, you know, I love that. I think that that's absolutely worth continuing. When I came into beginning my doctorate, it was uh, invaluable. There were questions I wanted to ask, and they were poll uh, questions. You know, it wasn't the kind where I could just go to a forum and get 12 answers, and that was enough. I needed, you know, two or 300 answers, and I I could just do that through the guild. And uh, it was tremendously uh, helpful for my education, I learned something new from the forum every day. Uh, as its uh, head administrator, uh, I do read almost every single post that goes through there. And now in these times, I mean, I, I found out about your show through the Violin Guild. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I, I did. Especially now in uh, in through uh, with the COVID nineteen pandemic. We've gotten all kinds of uh, people coming in, and uh, people have met, met students off there. Uh, I get uh, emails on a weekly basis from people thanking me for being able to meet their teacher or being able to buy their case or um, being able to get more students uh, through the guild. And uh, it brought about my uh, ambassadorship with uh, Southwest Strings. And uh, I know you wanted me to mention... Uh, my uh, recent trip to um, ASTA uh, 2020 in Orlando. That was sponsored by uh, Southwest Strings. And uh, that was sponsored, and I I was connected to Southwest Strings uh, through uh, the Violin Guild as well. Um, They really appreciate it, and we've really appreciated them. 
Dr. Abraham, I'm going to ask one last question, and then we're going to play a little bit of violent podcast trivia. And since you did hear the last episode, um, I'll explain the rules one more time. But before we get to that, I just want to leave with one question for our audience here who's listening in today on the Violent Podcast. You said that you're an educator, that you're also a teacher, and it's it's clear to me that you just by your very nature, you're always trying to bring a sense of community, especially in the Violin Guild and what you were speaking about today. Can you give anyone who's listening some advice on they might be they might be feeling stuck in the practice room during this COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, everybody has a very different situation, different circumstances. And you obviously have a lot to say about the topic. What can you suggest to someone who is at home listening and, you know, is trying to get some inspiration or lacking inspiration and are, you know, trying to recreate that spark to continue on with music or just to play music? Sure, absolutely. And and I've I know I haven't been uh void of that challenge uh myself. Um I think all of us have felt it, you know, it, I talked about how it's very um you know, it's great to have an audience. It's great to not just be heard um or tolerated, but to actually want to be heard uh, and have people who want to hear you. That's what I meant to say. When that's gone, you know, our, our industry relies on our audiences and we have uh, our in-person audiences aren't, aren't around anymore. And that can be uh, difficult to tolerate. This is the fewest, uh, the lowest number of performances that I've had since the day I started. What helps me to to stay motivated is... I think for most of us, especially those of us who play music as a career or we're, we are serious students or we're in college for it, I would bet every last one of us has said, uh, I wish I had some time to do this. I wish I had some time to learn that. Uh, this another concerto I only learned the first movement of. I really, I really wish I had the time to learn the next two. This is, if you have time on your hands, especially, you know, undesired time on your hands, this is an opportunity to turn that undesired time into that desired time. And part, a, motiv- a motivator for that can be, you've probably spent the last decade at least learning how rare that time comes by. Now it's here and it's forced upon you. you use it. That time, this time is important. It's, and time is, is valuable. You know, I've gone back and forth trying to figure out which is more valuable, time or, or money. They're both pretty high up on that list. But uh, one thing we never want to do is waste either of those things. Uh, and in order for time to keep its value, you have to put it to, to good use. And how exciting will it be to you know, cause when this ends, because it, it will end, um, but how exciting will it be to have it end and know that you have the mental fortitude to actually learn music still, you know, to and to improve still. I think the best 
the best professionals, the best teachers, the best players, period, are the ones who are still students and who never stop being a student. A student is just someone who has the gumption and will to continue learning. Um, and this is a period of time that we can that we can use to learn. And I think that every motivation imaginable, if we allow ourselves to actually imagine them, is present. I couldn't agree more. I think that for me, I think we often fall into the trap where we have too much time. And then we're like, oh, well, the couch is right over there. I can, you know, <laughs> I can sit down and watch a piece of television that's or Netflix or you know, stream something. But I think you'll, you only have a finite amount of time in the day. And as we discussed earlier about organizing your time efficiently, you know, everybody has different goals. Everybody has different situations, of course, but it's about, you know, you succeeding on your goals, not on somebody else's goals. And I think, you know, we're all, we're all in this together. And I think, just like the Violin Guild, I hope that this Violin Podcast community grows. And please leave comments and questions on uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave the comments. We I do read them and I do respond to them. And we, you know, we love to hear from you. So thank you, Doctor Abraham, for sharing all of that. Now we have Violin Podcast trivia. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, this is Violin Podcast Trivia. We, I ask my guests to get three out of the five questions right in 25 seconds in order to get a prize from me. So I have 25 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. What town was Beethoven born in? Uh, he was born in Bonn. How long did it take for Tchaikovsky to write his violin concerto? Uh I want to say uh, a, a year. He bought it and wrote it for his boyfriend. <laughs> Which opus number was Paganini Caprices? Uh, opus one. And time. And that is time. Uh, so we didn't make it all the way to the five questions. But I'll get, just for good sport, I will g- uh, give you the, the last two questions. Um, who is considered the Stradivari of bows? Oh, um, uh, Francois Tour. Yeah, you you would have gotten that question right. And who is the current music director of the Boston Symphony? I uh, I don't know. And that would be Andres Nelsons. All right, but since you were able to just answer three questions, if you get these three questions right, you'll be eligible to win a Violin Podcast mug from me. All right. So number one, what town was Beethoven born in? You said Bonn. And Bonn was correct. So you got number one right. So number two, how long did it take for Tchaikovsky to write his violin concerto? You said one year. As a matter of fact, it was two weeks he wrote it. He wrote it in two weeks because he was inspired by Lalo concerto and then went back home and wrote it in two weeks. I think he wrote the second movement in a day, if I'm... If he, I'm not mistaken, he yeah. replaced the second movement. Uh, he had, he turned this, the, his original second movement into an orchestral work, and then uh, replaced it with another one, um, the, the Canzonetta. Um, Beautiful movement, right? 
But yeah, I think I think the Canzonetta, I think he did right in a in a day. Mm-hmm. And the third question was which opus number was Paganini's Caprices? Opus one. So you yeah. got two out of the five questions right. Unfortunately, you need to get three though. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I, I got how uh, how many out of five correct? So you got you got the first one right, which was uh, what town was Beethoven born in, which was Bonn. You got that right, and you said one year. Uh, how long did uh, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto? Right. Like how long did Violin the Concerto was written? It was two weeks, uh, which was written. You said one year, and then which opus number was Paganini's Caprices? Uh, opus one. One. You got that. You got that right. And uh, if we had a little bit more time, you would have gotten Francois Tort right. So you would have. You would have gotten. You're out of five, right? So you would have gotten the mug, but it's it's kind of a tricky, oh, well. kind of a tricky game, yeah. <laughs> Twenty five seconds on the clock, it's kind of quick, which makes this a whole lot of fun. Oh, maybe next time. Oh well, next time, next time, <laughs> maybe we'll do a special YouTube video of Violin Podcast. Maybe uh, you can redeem yourself. How does that sound? Maybe the reward will be bigger. <laughs> it sounds good to me. All right, well, Doctor Abraham, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on all things violin related, sharing your story within music and outside of music. And I wish you all the best. And I hope that people get to join the Violin Guild and follow Dr. Abraham on social media. He is, uh, his handle is The Violin Doctor. And he shows uh, a lot of informative things on his social media platforms uh, in terms of teaching, in terms of education. And uh, would it be a bad idea to follow him? So thanks again, Dr. Abraham. Hey, thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure, and I always enjoy listening to your show. I uh, appreciate everything that I learned from it, and um, until next time, thank you. Until next time. Mm-hmm.